0: This conversation on discipline features Andrew Atwood, Laurel Broughton, Jimenez Lai, Anna Nemark, and James Tate. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture.
1: If the discipline were important, we wouldn't have anxiety about it. The anxiety is because there's this self-consciousness and worry that it isn't important. So it seems to me to suggest that it actually to an outside world is not important at all.
2: I was just simply confused about what even um, what sort of what what we all kind of collectively shared as
3: architects. Architecture is constantly trying to define the discipline within its particular moment in time. In the last three years, there was a there's a shift that occurred where suddenly, the models you made and the drawings that were being produced, we began to like actually think of them as, as having an equivalent status.
0: Recently I've been thinking about the similarity between disciplinarity and sycophantism. It's almost as though I'm brown-nosing dead people, you know, like, what? why am I such a suck up to like, <laughs> you know, history? And, and what the hell is wrong with you know people who do that?
4: Well, what are the fundamentals that we should all share rather than what are the boundaries that we should be pushing? Without these things, we all become individuals speaking into the dark.
3: One of the things that I'm quite worried about right now is these programs that, the kind of education of architects where you can go for six years and, or maybe it's even four, five years, but you come out and you're licensed and ready to practice. In recent years, the discipline has once again become a point of focus in
0: architectural discourse. In this piece, we hear how each participant situates their work within a disciplinary context and how they work on disciplinary issues, if at all. First is Laurel, whose work engages multiple disciplines, including architecture, graphic design, and fashion.
1: In a strange position because I think on the inside I'm an outsider and on the outside I'm an outsider. Like I'm sort of in, because we could say my work is interdisciplinary, I end up being out always outside like an outsider on the inside in all the different spaces. but regardless, I do think that it it's important in that it sets up having a kind of shared acknowledgement of certain conditions that that is important because that's what allows people to have conversations across different work within, say the discipline or a discipline everyone being in relationship to a certain history allows for a kind of conversation to happen between projects that would ordinarily almost have nothing to do with each other but if they can triangulate back to a certain place then it allows them to be in conversation with each other
4: one way to maybe think about I mean, yes, our work is disciplinary. It engages the history of the discipline, it engages the contemporary tools of the discipline, it engages all kinds of themes and conversations that are really within the realm of what architects might be interested in talking about and what constitutes a work of architecture. And this probably comes back to some of the questions that Peter Eisenberg would have raised a while ago. So, this is not a kind of new topic, but a return to maybe the center of some of the debates that are, that have been ongoing for a while now.
2: I think that's where a lot of our work started was, uh, I I would just say a kind of confusion or anxiety or overly self-conscious way of working that just had no idea. I I just, like, I had no idea sort of, I, I, and I both were educated on the East coast and came to LA and then sort of being dropped into this. I, I was just simply confused about what even, um, what sort of, what what we all kind of collectively shared as architects, and I mean, in a very small group of people, like the sort of 150 people that teach architecture in the United States uh, that operate, let's say, in between the Northeastern United States and Southern California, I had no idea. And so I think a lot of those early works were just like, what like, what do we all kind of collectively share? What what might be at the core of the discipline? I thought we were kind of early to that, but now, that, that, like people meaning amongst our peers, but now that word also, it gets used so much, the discipline, we're just, we just constantly refer to things as being the sort of disciplinary boundaries and the disciplinary stakes. I have a kind of exhaustion for that term. The terms that you're picking are, are certainly the ones that I think get thrown around the most. I don't know if discipline or disciplinary is something that people don't necessarily understand what it means. But I think it does it sort of stands in for things that it doesn't that it probably doesn't need to like way too much now.
0: That was Anna and Andrew of First Office. Now James Tate.
3: I think that probably very much influenced by my time working with Michael Meredith and Hillary Sample is just this idea that architecture is constantly trying to define the discipline within its particular moment in time. Some people they say, Oh, there there's a discipline and, and this is what's in and this is what's out. I actually like the fact that maybe if I were to list ten things that make up the discipline, and then you were to, to list ten things that would make up the discipline, there there would be certain things that we would probably both write down, but then there would be things that you would include that I wouldn't include. And I think that it's it's those kind of overlaps and edges and tensions that I think force us to continuously question ideas of what architecture is and can be, might be, should be. Part of my graduate education was in a time when interdisciplinary was rampant, and just about anything and everything was on the table, and because at that time we weren't really, no one was talking about the discipline at that point, there was nothing to really bring it all together. (laughs) I think that questions of of the discipline have slowly in my mind begun to be more of like how does one go about disciplining their work and how do we go about disciplining things maybe I do subscribe to that side of architecture that emphasizes that architects sh- that architects make representations there isn't one way there isn't a right way or a wrong way to draw things or model things but I think there are ways of working that that are more that are more architectural, than how other creative fields go about making representations and how they think about things, and a lot of that is from this accumulation, and construction of a body of knowledge that we call architecture. Um, like there are certain tendencies, that I think, and persistencies that we see, starting you know with the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and in Egypt where certain tendencies begin to pop up dealing with kind of ideas of outside, inside, corners, the kind of proportioning of things, you know, are things put together in terms of kind of this plus that, or is it starting with a hole and carving it out? I think I think certain things begin to be really associated with how one thinks architecturally, that over over the next 2,000 years can be picked up again and again and modified slightly in their own time. And when we, when we look at certain drawings, we're able to compare notes in a way of how the, how these ideas get, how they change, how they move, I don't I don't think they get better or worse. I think that they reflect something in each moment in time and in some ways, while plans and sections might be the most kind of foreign thing for the general public to look at and to interpret, I think architects are able to look at those drawings and they're in a lot of ways a kind of a reflection of of the given architect's kind of relationship to the world at that time.
0: In contrast to James, Jimenez is skeptical about such fascination with disciplinary history. To be honest, I've been conflicted myself recently. Recently, I've been thinking about the similarity between disciplinarity and sycophantism. It's almost as though I'm brown-nosing dead people, you know? Like, what, why am I such a suck-up to, like, <laughs> you know, history? And uh, what the hell is wrong with, you know, people who do that? And so I think about that sometimes, you know, uh, a kind of almost religious sycophantism. That's a possible like orthodoxy way of performing discipline. It was almost, almost like toting the party line. Like there are certain words you have to avoid or certain words that you, you must say, uh, which is ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, and, and you know me, I'm a skeptical guy. Like almost always I, I just, you know, like I'll create something and then right away I'll turn around and look at it and think that's stupid. <laughs> yeah. and uh, and that's how I feel recently about uh, the idea of this discipline disciplinarity like there's a kind of liberated let's say f- freedom for lack of better words uh, for people who just don't care mm-hmm. uh, and when they don't care they create this kind of island uh, where something something I guess obscure or totally strange could happen uh, and now of course there's danger in that right like I mean, we've talked about more. Morissette in the past. Like, that's what she does. She's in her own little bubble, and therefore her music sucks. But then, like, and so for people like Madonna or Lady Gaga, like, for them to know history, uh, it's important. And that's why their music is so great, because, you know, they understand history. But, but I guess so, which is why I'm saying I'm conflicted. Like, I think I see the importance of history, and I do it, but I'm simultaneously increasingly becoming more and more skeptical skeptical
4: of it. We came to LA and we realized that the first question everybody asked a student was, how is your project pushing the boundaries of the field? What is new about what you have produced? And having given the kind of assignment to participate in the core um, and uh, write some of the core curriculum, I think both of us, looked toward, like thinking about, well, what are the fundamentals that we should all share rather than what are the boundaries that we should be pushing constantly, especially with students. And so I think fundamentally came back to the question of what is it that we teach that we can share? What are the norms of the discipline? What are the conventions of drawing something? How do we discuss things that are not at all pushing the boundaries of the field? They're completely in the center and yet using all of the vocabulary that is normative uh, still kind of produce something that engages us today. I teach at SAIRC, and uh, our terminal project is the thesis. Many of the schools, and this kind of comes back to the post-critical debate, uh, many of the schools over the last, let's say, 10 years eliminated the thesis as the terminal project of the master's program. There was an idea that, students were not ready to engage in disciplinary questions uh, as individuals, let's say, as a collective body of individuals. And there were only a few schools that were committed to the project of the thesis. Princeton was one of them, CIRC was another, there may be a couple of others. I think that in a school committed to thesis, the problem of the discipline is primary. Even if it is something to be uh, fighting against, even if the project is a project that has a huge sense of humor and irony to it. And this maybe comes back to some of your students that you mentioned were allergic to the word or unclear about how to even speak about it. Their lack of clarity comes from the fact that they're interested in resistance and that they're probably interested in this kind of less serious approach. I would I would think that that kind of approach is still disciplinary. It's, it's kind of, um, it's reactive to maybe what is going on, and therefore valid, right? So I think that within the school that has a kind of thesis environment, I haven't seen from my students uh, or in my teaching a difficulty in trying to understand or at least try to define some of the themes that might bind uh, the projects together. I think it's actually quite important. Without these things, we all become individuals speaking into the dark without any common conversation, without any common kind of principles. So uh, you, see, you begin to see a thesis that is about uh, the place where you were born, about the problems of your own youth, a kind of psychoanalytic personal statement. It's very difficult to critique these projects and to talk about them in any way that would engage a larger audience, uh, as opposed to a project that starts with problems that we might share and then deviate from that or build on those things.
2: We both, I think Anna and I both teach first-year studios and thesis at different schools. And it just happened, like, I think those are the two places where those those types of questions come up. And mm-hmm. as a student, or even as, let's say, a young faculty member on reviews and just sort of, like, in the larger politics in the school, it's easy to be reactionary just as, just as a student might be. But when you're teaching something, like, just at a very practical level, you have to have a framework from which you're teaching from it has to be, in some ways, projective, and some attitude towards just a shared set of something, I would even say values, mm-hmm. techniques, methods, something that stands in for something that you might call a discipline, is the, is the only way I can think of to teach. And when I started teaching, I had no knowledge of these things, and had to learn them simply to be able to respond in a kind of positive and optimistic way towards a group of students. And it's easier for a group of students to react, to just constantly react to things, which I think is, I'm sympathetic to that as a way of working. But if you're teaching core first-year studios and then you're also bookending that with thesis, those are where those questions come up. And you have to have a kind of projective. Optimistic might not be the right word. Projective might not even be the right word. But you can't simply be reactive in those situations. Or you mm-hmm. just, like, you it, you just, it, it, it exhausts itself way too quickly and. Mm-hmm. Both, I think, in a kind of first, like a first semester, first year design course, and in a thesis. And it just happens to be the places where Han and I both teach. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of order and the logic to things that come from something called a discipline. And especially in first year studios, you have to know where to start. I mean, you just have to know what to tell them to do first. And that kind that of ordering of things has to come out of something. And I think maybe that's what we might call a discipline. Right? Like, mm-hmm. what do you do first? What do you teach them first? Right? In a third-year topic studio, it doesn't really matter, right? You just kind of got to get the game going with ZBrush. Um, but in a first-year studio, you have to like it'd be like, we're going to do this before we're going to do that, right? You, I think it requires a sort of disciplined approach to things.
3: The studios that I've taught in the last three years, there was there's a shift that occurred where suddenly the models you made and the drawings that were being produced we began to like actually think of them as, as having an equivalent status to the kind of end building. When I was in undergrad and grad school, the representations were really in service to getting to the building. So they were subservient to, the, to, that, to that end object. I think one of the things that began to happen, especially probably my exposure to Eisenman and being a TA for the visual studies course that he teaches at, at Yale, I think the drawing started to, its status began to change for me. And then simultaneously, on a kind of opposite end of the spectrum, taking another one of my final studios with Keller Easterling and and how kind of representation was folded into that as a as a way of, of making an argument a way of in some ways making storytelling, the kind of analytic side of Peter <laughs> and the kind of storytelling of Keller in some ways began to like influence my thoughts about the the kind of status of representation. And then going to to work with Michael and Hillary at, at Moss. I you know, there I'm I'm working in something that it, was a professional practice, but one that that was really deeply embedded in two young, energetic, deeply passionate about architecture faculty members at at the GSD and at Yale at the time. And the, the drawings that we would produce there were not just about the drawings that you would produce to give to the contractor to execute the thing, but they had to also, they themselves had to have an idea and then being exposed to maltson where it was it was less about the drawing there and more about the model so the status of the model the way that the models inhabited the studio space michael would michael would talk about the models as being as being as important as the as the end building so i think being exposed to two professional practices where, where that was on the table. And, and, you know, it was probably also on the table when, when I was working for Mockbee. So I, I, think, I think probably my unknowingly going down the path that I went down, those representations, they are as much the architecture as the, the kind of object that comes out of it. They're in a lot of ways working on the discipline. One of the things that, that drawings do that building struggle with is drawings and models in some ways or any kind however we we document the kind of fi- I would say the fixed position of once you've either photographed a model or how you made a model how you made it how you make a drawing the kind of fixed position of of those documents they in some ways lock in a, a particular moment in time <laughs> And they're kind of making an argument at that, at that moment uh, about what architecture might be.
0: To me, the plan and the section are so important. Like, uh, mm-hmm. it's really hard to dispute how dominant it, it is and, and, in my opinion, how, how dominant it will be. Uh, it will continue to be very dominant in, in our world, um, you know, in the world of architecture. Uh, That said, I think there are other ways of describing architecture, and there are also other ways of maybe even describing urbanism. So I I made a presentation recently about cinema and architecture. Remember that that scene from Pulp Fiction when uh, Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta went to Quentin Tarantino, Jimmy's house, and they were trying to store a dead person. Uh, So that scene, you know, the way that Jimmy was dressed, you know, bathrobe. the way that he was holding his coffee mug, uh, the knickknacks, the clock on the wall, the window, what's out the window. So uh, there is a city beyond that image. There's a city beyond those walls. And I think, uh, but then the image already described the kinds of density, architectural typology, even materiality, texture uh, and so on, and so forth, and even traffic patterns. Like, I, th- I feel like I'm able to now sit down and draw a city based on that image. Uh, And I I think this is a really powerful agent. Uh, Pope fiction is, I say, a set of images about Los Angeles. And we know LA fairly well. Uh, Even those of us who don't live there have, like, let's say, an impression of Los Angeles. But then there are, like, let's say, fictional cities. So, for for example, the futuristic LA and Blade Runner could also be derived from the images, maybe. Or we're also just talking about her, the movie. Like, I'm slightly confused as to which city I'm supposed to be in, but I also have the good idea that I think I'm able to maybe draw some urban plans. And so I think, yeah, to, to maybe go around with your, or return to your question, I think there are other ways of describing architecture beyond plans and sections only, but I think plans and sections will remain very important.
3: One of the things that I'm quite worried about right now is these programs that the kind of education of architects where you can go for six years, and, or maybe it's even four, five years, but you come out and you're licensed and ready to practice. Looking at those programs that are doing that, it turns architecture into a pure service-providing profession, and, and it becomes almost purely vocational training. The reason why architecture exists in the university is because of its discursive qualities. I think you have to know that that the Romans had a certain attitude towards the kind of construction of space and a form, attitudes towards material, certain biases, and then you and then you see someone like Ledoux or Boule, anyone during that during the Enlightenment, and you see certain attitudes um, towards those same things shift to to someone outside of architecture when when they look at when they look at a at a if they were to go to the salt works and then they were to go to Rome and look at the Pantheon they're going to see what's similar between the two but i think that it's really important that architects be able to look at at, at the Pantheon and and look at salt works or go to UVA and and look at Jefferson's projects, and be able to see the differences between these things that that otherwise look the same. Kind of a big problem at the moment is that a lot of architecture students and a lot of architects working in in the profession aren't able to see how to actually leverage things from our body of knowledge and transform them. I I can only point to how, in in postmodernism, that was for some people really productive unfortunately it took a it it took a turn where i think two things happened one where it became pure historicism and two it also became the only thing that that would be talked about and so i think that's one of the things that those of us who are who are using kind of references in today that draw in the past is to keep in mind, like, where those paths can go. Because I, I do think they can be extremely productive. I mean, one only has to look at the way that, that someone like Thomas Jefferson kind of radically transforms Palladio, in, in my opinion. <laughs> because when you go to those other schools that where these questions about the discipline and about postmodernism aren't happening, I think what you find are two things. One, a kind of almost complete dissolving of architecture is a body of knowledge, and two, you find schools that are basically teaching students to go out and resolve building problems, so in a very, like, practical manner.
1: You've been listening to
0: A Conversation on Discipline. Interviews were conducted by Joseph Bedford, Kurt Gambetta, Mark Achari, Joanna Grant, and Kevin Pazic between 2014 and 2015. Produced for the third
2: issue of Attention, the audio journal for architecture in 2016 by Griffin Ophish.